What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Before we begin, an important note. This episode marks the introduction of my research assistant, Elissa. More on that at the end of the show. Salam alaikum, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 170. The mother is sweet, born of the sun. Today, we reach a transition point, a mini-intermediate period. Egypt's ruling household faces a challenge, as King Horemheb fails to produce an heir. The price of his attempts is high, and his response is intriguing. This episode comes to you on behalf of Eric from Nierbeek, James from Mahopak, and Julian from Vienna. These fine folks donated to the podcast, for which I am most grateful. Julian, James, Eric, Danke, thank you, and bedankt. May your rivers and lakes enjoy the brightest sunshine that Ra can offer. May you enjoy health and happiness. To everyone listening, Thank you for joining me. Let's explore a significant transition. Our story begins in 1975. As the last quarter of the 20th century began, intriguing discoveries were underway. At the necropolis of Saqqara, archaeologists had relocated the tomb of Horemheb. This is the pre-royal tomb, a monument he commissioned back when he was an official, not a pharaoh. The tomb was known previously, and blocks of stone bearing its art had made their way to many European museums. But the monument itself had temporarily disappeared, as the wind-blown sand came in from the Sahara and covered it up. Then, a breakthrough, as a team led by Geoffrey Martin relocated the monument, and they began to clear it. Over the seasons, a great deal of new information emerged. The discovery and excavation far exceeded the archaeologists' initial expectations. Speaking to the Associated Press just after the find, Geoffrey Martin said that one of the things he most hoped to find was information about Horemheb's family. In this respect, he was incredibly lucky. Deep within the tomb, there were human remains. This was surprising. The excavators did not necessarily expect a burial, at least not one from the New Kingdom. Presumably, King Horemheb had gone to his rest in the Valley of the Kings, so any burials within the tomb should probably be from much later. And yet, in a chamber beneath the monument, traces of New Kingdom activity came forth, and soon they found a skeleton. The body was fragmentary, torn apart by ancient robbers, but studying the remains and the burial overall, archaeologists found clues to the context. For the date, the reign of Horemheb seemed likely. A wine jar 
bearing the king's name turned up in the remains. That jar had a date written on it, year 13, helping to pinpoint the rough period of the funeral. As for the body, artefacts around the tomb seemed to suggest an identity. Fragments of a canopic jar bore the name Moot Nojmet. Moot Nojmet, or the goddess Moot is sweet, was Horemheb's great wife, the queen of Egypt. The skeleton itself was that of a woman. She was approximately 35 to 45 years old, and she had died in difficult circumstances. The cause of her death was, sadly, quite easy to identify. Among the fragments of Mut Nojmet's skeleton, another body was visible. The tiny bones of a fetus lay with the queen. The child was approximately nine months old, but it had never lived. From the traces, it was clear that this infant had died either in the womb, in utero, or during the birthing process. Apparently, it had taken the queen with it. This discovery is remarkable. If the skeleton is Moot Nojmet, then we have a detailed portrait of a woman and her final years, even her final moments on earth. What's more, the skeletal remains tell us about this lady's existence, her day-to-day life. In some ways, we learn a lot more from these bones than we do from all of the monuments. Moot Nojmet, the goddess Moot is sweet, had been the queen since day one, as far as we can tell. For more than a decade, she had stood at Horemheb's side, the pair acting as Egypt's divine rulers. Surprisingly, we know almost nothing about this queen. Traces of Mut Nojmet are few, a couple of statues, some references here and there on temples, but not much else. Compared to her recent predecessors, the queen is a rather shadowy figure. For the first 12 years of her reign, we know almost nothing. By year 13, the queen was in her late 30s at least. Her skeleton is fragmentary, but forensic study gave a range from 35 to 45 years old, at the time of her death. I'll say 40, just to cover our bases, but that's an estimate. In short, Moot Nojmet was not a young woman, especially by ancient standards. She wasn't necessarily old, though, and living in the royal household, she had access to the finest foods and care. Hypothetically, Moot Nojmet could have lived another 10 or 20 years, assuming her diet and health were sufficient. Alas, Moot Nojmet was not in good health. Studies of her skeleton, assuming it is her, found several issues with the queen's overall condition. Most notably, Moot Nojmet had lost almost all of her teeth. A terrible illness had denuded her gums, and the queen had lost all of the teeth except for two lateral incisors, those peg-shaped teeth near the front of your mouth. The other teeth, the canines and the molars, were gone. As a result, Moot Nojmet probably subsisted on a liquid diet. Soup, thick beer, and whatever vegetables or meat you could grind up to a mushy paste. It would not be a satisfactory diet, and the queen may have been in pain from her jaws. So the skeleton tells us that Moot Nojmet's health may have been an issue. This probably complicated things. 
Around year 13, the Queen of Egypt became pregnant. It was not a new experience. From her skeleton, it seems that Mut Nojmet had gone through several pregnancies earlier in her life. They did not end well. At least one pregnancy had failed badly, and resulted in heavy blood loss. Mut Nojmet survived, but it was challenging, and the impact of that struggle is visible in her bones. So the Queen had done this before. It had not been a positive experience, but she would be pregnant again. For better or worse, Mut Nojmet was the king's great wife. There were certain obligations with that position. Over the next nine months, Mut Nojmet would experience the usual changes associated with pregnancy. Her diet was probably a major challenge. Since Mut Nojmet could only eat soft, mushy food or liquid nourishment, it may have been difficult to satisfy certain nutritional needs. Protein was probably quite hard to obtain, and fatigue may have set in more acutely than normal. We can only speculate from the traces that survive, but pregnancy is a life-changing and life-challenging experience. Mut Nojmet probably went through a lot. Finally, the day arrived. Mut Nojmet began to experience contractions as the muscles of her uterus prepared. Soon, the queen probably found herself swamped with midwives. The birthing process would begin. Egyptian women seem to have given birth squatting or kneeling. They would place their feet or knees atop bricks made of mud and bearing hieroglyphic texts. These magical bricks would invoke great goddesses like Hathor and Isis, beings who would guide and protect a mother and child. In the event of a successful birth, the goddesses might pronounce the child's future. On earth, we can imagine priestesses attending Mut Nojmet on behalf of these deities. Women of the temples, perhaps wearing crowns or symbols of the gods, would assist in the birthing. They would burn incense, shake these sistrum rattles, sing songs or prayers. At all stages, they would help Mut Nojmet, and, hopefully, bring divine protection to the queen. Alas, Mut Nojmet's labour did not go as planned. From the skeletal remains, it seems that her infant did not come forth easily, if it came at all. Potentially, the queen was faced with the challenge of an unwilling birth. How would the ancients deal with that? We do have some information about this process and the response to it. About a hundred years after Mut Nojmet, give or take, scribes copied down various texts. These texts, on papyrus, record some of the methods used for dealing with a difficult birth. This gives us an idea of what might have happened to the queen. The text records a speech, or a command. It should be given by a religious official, say a priestess, and it reveals one approach to the problem. As Mut Nojmet struggled to birth her child, a priestess might have said the following, quote, O Ra and Aten, or Sun Disk, O gods who are in the sky, gods who are in the west, gods who judge this entire land, behold, Isis, the mother, is suffering as a pregnant woman. Her months have been completed according to the correct number. That is, she is full term. She is pregnant with her son Horus. Behold, if Isis, the mother, 
spends her time without giving birth, you, gods, will be dumbfounded. There will be no sky, no earth, there will be no offerings for any of the gods. In the shrine, there will be lamentation. The sun's light will not appear, the Nile will not flow. It is not I, the priestess, who says this, it is Isis that has said it, for she has already spent a period of time without her son Horus being born. O gods, take care of the childbirth of Mutnojmet in this case, in the same manner as Isis. End quote. So the priestess might give a command, even a threat, to the great gods. The idea was to invoke their assistance, to help the child come forth when it was unwilling. In this text, the child within the womb is compared to Horus, the eternal king. And if Horus does not come forth, then the natural order will break down. The land would be in chaos, and the gods would not receive their offerings. So the priestess, speaking on behalf of Isis, warns the deities, help this mother give birth, or suffer terrible consequences. Texts like these are specifically labelled as a way to accelerate, or sechak, a birthing, and it was clearly a serious matter. For Mutnojmet, the priestess would have double cause to invoke the names of Isis and Horus. After all, the queen of Egypt was, hypothetically, bringing forth the next prince. The new incarnation of Horus, the eternal king, was waiting in her womb. If this birthing took too long, the mother, Isis, and the child, Horus, might die. So as the labour intensified, the urgency increased. According to her skeleton, Mutnojmet struggled to give birth to this child, but it did not go as hoped. Eventually, the physical toll, or the blood loss, became too great. The child took too long to arrive. In the end, Mutnojmet collapsed. Her breath gave out. Her heart ceased its labours. The Queen of Egypt was dead. At the age of 40, roughly speaking, Mutnojmet became pregnant, for the last time. Having carried several children through various stages of difficulty and loss, Mutnojmet reached her final pregnancy. She bore this child for nine months, and on her appointed day, she went to the birthing rooms. She laboured to bring forth a child. Alas, the experience killed her, and Mutnojmet joined the many women before and after who have suffered in this process. As the queen died, so did her child. The infant passed, either in utero or during the birth. The sex of this child is unknown. Only a few fragments survive from its skeleton, not enough to determine the identity. Perhaps it was a male, a new Horus. Perhaps it was a female, a new Isis or Hathor. Either way, the child travelled to the west alongside its mother. Following their deaths, the body of Mutnojmet and her child underwent mummification. Physicians and priests prepared the bodies for their eternal journey. Eventually, a funeral procession made its way out of the city of Memphis, Men-Nefer. The procession wound its way into the hills to the great plateau of Saqqara. There, the mourners, priests, and probably King Horemheb himself, 
laid the dead in a chamber of the king's earlier tomb. They placed canopic jars alongside Mujnojmet, along with provisions for the afterlife. There were amphorae with wine, perhaps food, including items that Mujnojmet could not consume in life. There would be writing instruments, furniture, jewellery, oils, unguents, cosmetics, perfumes, clothing, everything the dead might need in the next world. Perhaps there were toys for the child that never lived. That is speculative, only a few fragments survive from the ancient burial. But we can perhaps imagine a comfortable farewell for this woman and the child. The queen's bar flew to the west. Her body travelled to its tomb, and there she would lie for 3,000 years. To Moot Nojmet, we must now say farewell. As the queen travelled to the world of the dead, the living had new concerns. Horemheb had failed to produce an heir. Moving forward, he would need to adapt to the situation. How he dealt with that, and the decisions he made, would have an enduring impact on Egyptian history. After the break, we will discuss succession. Horemheb would now choose one of his servants, a royal official, to be his designated heir. That official bears a famous name, Pa-Ra-Mesu, better known as Rameses. We will meet him after the break. See you in a moment. Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm the host and creator of the Ancient History Hound podcast. Yeah, I know, another person asking you to listen to their podcast. So why should you exactly? Well, I cover a variety of topics from across the ancient Mediterranean involving the peoples of Greece, Rome, and even eastwards into Mesopotamia. As someone who studied ancient history at postgrad level, my episodes are well-researched, and now I include a set of episode notes with transcriptions, reading lists, maps, that kind of a thing. You can find them by visiting my website, ancientblogger.com. As you'll hear, I'm all about ancient history, and it will be epic if you could join me. The year was approximately 1319 BCE. It was regnal year 13 under the majesty of Josa Keperu Ra Hor-em-Heb. Hor-em-Heb still had not produced an heir, To the best of our knowledge, there were no children for this king. At least, no acknowledged children. If Horemheb had other wives or sexual partners, we do not know about them. There is one woman, named Amenia, who might be an early wife of Horemheb, or at least a member of his family. Unfortunately, that relationship is quite uncertain. There is debate among academics. Regardless, the situation seems relatively clear. However you look at it, King Horemheb had failed in his most important duty. He did not produce a viable heir. There would be no Horus issuing from his loins, and as a result, the future might belong to instability and chaos. So, what to do? In the end, Horemheb turned to a servant. He appointed one of his officials, a high-ranking member of the government, to be his successor. This man was named Pa-Ra-Mesu. Pa-Ra-Mesu means born of the sun. Not born of Ra, at least not yet. 
As a non-royal person, Paramesu spelled his name phonetically. He did not use the term Ra in its divine sense, like the god, but rather its literal one, just meaning the sun. Later, when he became the king, Paramesu did change the spelling of his name to include divine symbols. But in his early life and career, Paramesu was born of the sun, not born of Ra. Stop me if you've heard this before, but Paramesu's origins are murky. We can piece together his early career, thanks to a couple of artifacts and records. But unlike Horemheb, who built a magnificent tomb at Saqqara, Paramesu did not leave a lavish, elaborate record of his work in the government. Presumably, Paramesu commissioned a tomb somewhere, and that might have been similar to Horemheb's. But to date, that tomb is unidentified. So we don't have the same kind of records as we did for Horemheb. Paramesu's family is a bit more visible. They seem to come from the north, the eastern delta region. That is an educated guess, based on the names of these people, and where their records show up. We'll start with the names. Paramesu's father was named Suti, or Seti. This name comes from the god Sutek, better known as Seth. Now obviously Seth is quite famous, but worship of Seth is relatively rare. The god does not show up in his own shrines or temples, at least not in the south. In the north, Seth is a bit more visible. He had temples, in the eastern delta region. Since Paramesu's father is called Suti, or Seti, after the god, it's a reasonable bet that the family comes from this region. Again, this is an educated guess, but it's a decent foundation. So the family might come from the north. What was their family business? Well, Suti, Seti, was a military man. He had the title of troop commander, Heri Pejet. He might have been a diplomat who visited the northern lands, but that point is uncertain. Unfortunately, the only thing we know about Suti for sure is that he was a troop commander, a military man. That is something, and it gives us a little bit of information. At the very least, we can say that Paramesu, Suti's son, had a vaguely military background in his family. It's not a lot to go on, but it's a start. Suti, or Seti, had been a troop commander. Paramesu followed in these footsteps. Early in his career, Paramesu became a soldier, specifically a troop commander. He was also an overseer of horses, an extremely valuable resource for the army, and he was, maybe, an overseer of stables as well. That last title is debated, but it would fit. If you're in charge of horses, it makes sense to be in charge of their housing and support facilities as well. Alas, the debate goes on, and we can't be sure. The point is, Paramesu was a troop commander, and he was an overseer of horses. So, like his father, he was a military man, first and foremost. It seems that Paramesu slowly climbed the ladder of the military administration. Along the way, he must have come to the attention of Horemheb. Perhaps the two knew one another, back when Horemheb had been an official, before he became king. We can only speculate on their relationship, 
but it seems that Horemheb started to favour Paramesu as a privileged official. Sometime in the later half of his reign, Horemheb gave Paramesu a serious promotion. He named this man as Chatti. The Chatti are Egypt's highest ranking officials. The most common translation is vizier, an old Arabic word. You could also call the Chatti the prime ministers or premier officials of the government. In the 18th dynasty, there were two Chatti, no more, no less. A Chatti of the north and a Chatti of the south. These men led the administration, the bureaucracy, for each half of the country. As you can imagine, they were incredibly prominent. Horamheb named Paramesu the Chatti of the North. With this promotion, Paramesu would become the leader of a vast government system. He would have scribes and overseers following his commands. He would have access and influence with local families or community leaders. And he would have control of resources belonging to the crown. Paramesu, as Chatti, would have power over justice and legal questions. And of course, he would enjoy social power, prestige, and status. This was a massive step up the ladder. As Chatti, Paramesu could access certain resources. Most importantly, he could access stone. The great stone quarries of south and north would provide materials for building projects and art. And Paramesu now had access to that. Here, we get a nice little trace of Paramesu's early life. You see, we actually have his sarcophagus. After he became the Chatti, Paramesu commissioned a casket. Two of them, in fact. Separate excavations, many years apart, uncovered two sarcophagi belonging to Paramesu. These are a pair, and they bear the same titles and names of their owner. That owner is Paramesu, and they seem to be the sarcophagi he commissioned in his pre-royal life. The caskets are human-shaped, or anthropoid. They present the owner lying on his back, with arms resting at his sides. Paramesu is shown wearing a robe, a long garment that reaches almost to his ankles. This robe is quite distinctive. It is the robe of the chatti, or the viziers. The man, the sarcophagus, wears a heavy wig or headdress. Thick strands, like braided hair, fall down over his shoulders. On his chin, he wears a short beard. His face is calm, passive. The eyes and lips have an almond shape, quite common in the late 18th dynasty. All up, Paramesu's sarcophagus is the classic image of a royal official. Beyond the art, which is pretty, these caskets tell us something important. It seems that when Paramesu became the chatti, or vizier, he did not necessarily expect to become the next king. The carvings on his sarcophagus are the sort you would find for any non-royal official. Like most of his contemporaries, Paramesu lists his most prominent jobs. He calls himself the chatti, or vizier, the hereditary noble, or aristocrat, the overseer of the fortress, the overseer of the city, troop commander, and king's scribe. Notably, he does not describe himself as king's son, 
even in an adopted sense. Even Paramesu's name is standard. The hieroglyphs for his name appear without any cartouche or symbol of royalty. Later, somebody did add cartouches to the sarcophagus, but if you look closely, you will still find the name in its original non-royal state. So we have a bunch of scattered information that give hints about the life, background, and career of Paramesu. It's not a lot to go on in terms of building a character study, but that is what we have for this man. Now, we come to the big questions. How, when, and why did Paramesu become Horemheb's heir? In the second half of his reign, Horemheb named Paramesu to be the Chati, or vizier, for northern Egypt. This was an impressive title, nothing to sneeze at. But it didn't mark Paramesu as the heir, at least not officially. It is possible that Horemheb promoted Paramesu as a kind of introduction, a way of starting the process to make this man his successor. That is speculative, but it might have some basis. On his monuments, one of Paramesu's more unique titles was Hereditary Noble of the Lord of the Two Lands, and an alternate version, Hereditary Noble of the Entire Land. These titles also showed up in Horemheb's pre-royal tomb, and they seem to be one of his proudest epithets. For some scholars, like Geoffrey Martin and Jacobus van Dyck, titles like these may have marked Horemheb's claim to inherit the throne after King Tutankhamun. That is a point of debate for historians. But it's interesting. Horemheb had those titles, and he later became the king. Paramesu also shows up with these titles, and he also became a king. It's possible that Horemheb gave these titles to indicate his favour towards Paramesu. Even if the king had not officially named him as a successor, Paramesu's titles, hereditary noble of the Lord of the Two Lands, may have conveyed his privileged position. Maybe titles like this are a new phenomenon that start to mark the heir presumptive. We don't know exactly when Paramesu became the heir, it probably happened after year 13 of Horemheb's reign. We base that on the funeral of Mutnojmet, who died sometime in year 13 or later. How much later? Unknown, and I'll come back to that next episode. But logically, Horemheb would not have named Paramesu as his heir if there was still a chance to bear a son. So at the very least, Paramesu probably became the heir sometime after year 13. The moment itself is not recorded, surprise surprise, but there is one possible, tentative, maybe relevant piece of information. The piece in question is an artistic scene. It comes from Horemheb's tomb at Saqqara. On the walls of this tomb, in one of the courtyards, we see a figure that might be Paramesu. In one scene, a royal official stands with his arms raised in celebration. Around him, small figures, servants, lift up necklaces and collars to fasten around his neck. It is a scene of rewarding the official 
is receiving praise. In front of this man, a giant figure stands holding a staff, and he reaches out with one hand. This figure might be Hormheb. We can't be sure. The scene in question only survives on a block. It was removed from the wall in the 1800s, and the rest of the scene is missing. Obviously, that's deeply frustrating, because there's a reasonable chance that this official is Paramesu. The artistic scene shows a man who is mature, possibly elderly. He has deep lines on his face, around his mouth. That seems to be an Egyptian way of conveying maturity or age. He also has a distinctive nose. The official's nose is not straight or even curved, which is the usual way of depicting noses in this period. Instead, this man has a pronounced hook or aquiline shape to his nose. This type of nose is a distinctive feature of the Ramesside males. It shows up in their art, and it shows up on their mummies. Now, the nose does not necessarily mean that the image is Paramesu, but it's a distinctive feature, and a remarkable coincidence between this image and what we know of Paramesu. At the very least, I think there is a decent chance that this wall carving shows that man. If that is accurate, then we may have an image of Paramesu. He appears in Horemheb's tomb, raising his arms and receiving praise and rewards from Horemheb himself. Now, to be clear, this scene probably doesn't show the promotion to crown prince or heir, or whatever you want to call it. Instead, it probably shows the general prestige and status of Paramesu, or whoever it is. And it shows his close personal or political relationship with Horemheb. On the walls of this monument, a monument that honoured Horemheb as a man, and later as a king, we might have an image of Paramesu. Again, this is tentative. As usual, we build our picture from scraps, little bits here and there, that combine to give some sense of the figure. Paramesu was an army officer, born to a military family, who came to prominence in Horemheb's court. He served King Horemheb, and rose high in the government. Eventually, he was voted most likely to succeed, should the pharaoh die without heir. Sometime after year 13, Paramesu became the prince. Finally, we have one key question. Why did Horemheb choose this man specifically to be his heir? Paramesu was a prominent military commander and a high-ranking member of the government, a chatti but none of that specifically gave him a claim to royal power. So what elevated Paramesu above the rest? In the circumstances, I think we can guess that there were two major reasons why Horemheb might choose this man. Firstly, Paramesu offered a lot in the way of experience. His career, like Horemheb's before it, had gone through several stages and parts of the government. From troop commander, to overseer of cities and forts, to chati, vizier or prime minister, Paramesu had the experience. And it's a fair bet that Paramesu had developed a close personal or at least political relationship with Horemheb during his years of service. So he had experience in two ways that really counted. He had experience of governance, and he had experience of power 
the social networks of Egypt's ruler. On that basis, Paramesu would be a good candidate. If Horemheb appointed him as a successor, he could offer continuity in the government. Additionally, Paramesu had something that Horemheb did not. Paramesu had children. Paramesu had a son named Suti. The boy was named after his grandfather, which might sound confusing. To distinguish young Suti from his grandfather, let's call him by the more famous version of his name, Seti, the boy who would become Seti I. By the second half of Horemheb's reign, Seti was approximately 16 years old. That is speculative. It depends on the chronology you're using, and how long you measure the reign of Horemheb. Some scholars say that Horemheb had a short reign, about 15 years in total. Others say he had a longer reign, about 27 years. Depending which dates you follow, young Seti might have been 16 when his father became the heir, or he could have been closer to 30. It's frustrating when you're trying to tell a story around all of this, but for the sake of simplicity, and picking something, I am going with a longer reign for Horemheb. So I'll put Seti at approximately 16 years old. Whatever his age, Seti was mature and healthy. He had survived the dangers of childhood and grown to puberty or beyond. Thus, Paramesu had already done what Horemheb could not. He had produced an heir. In this case, young Seti was the heir to Paramesu's household, the House of Rameses, if you will. But soon, he would become much more. This child might have been another point in Paramesu's favour. It is possible that Horemheb looked at Paramesu's family, specifically his son, and saw the future. If Seti was 16, then he had a long life ahead of him. Paramesu was old, but he had this heir. So if Horemheb chose Paramesu to succeed him, then soon after that, Egypt would have a new, young, and vigorous ruler. Maybe, just maybe, Horemheb saw this family, and Seti its heir, and thought, yes, that is a strong line. Finally, it is possible that Paramesu already had a grandson. Again, this is tentative, depending on the chronology you are using. But in the second half of Horemheb's reign, there is a reasonable chance that young Seti, all of 16, had already produced a child. If so, that might be the child Ramesu, later known as Ramesses II. Put this all together, and we might have a resume for Paramesu's candidacy. The military commander had risen high in the government, becoming one of Horemheb's top officials. Thus, he could offer Horemheb, and Egypt's wealthy elites, a sense of continuity. When the king inevitably died, things would continue as before. Furthermore, Paramesu could offer a future. He had a son, Seti, who was already a teenager. And maybe he had a grandson, Ramesu, still just a baby. Either way, Horemheb's servant had a great set of cards. If there were other candidates for crown prince, Paramesu could dole out a really good hand. He had experience, he had influence, he probably had followers in the government and the army, and he already had legacy. If Horemheb chose him, 
then the next two, maybe even three generations of rule were already confirmed. By any measure, that is a full house. So perhaps Horemheb selected Paramesu for two main reasons. He was experienced and able, and he had a stable and growing family. If you were looking for a successor, those might be excellent recommendations. Whatever his exact reasoning, Horemheb probably made this choice sometime after year 13. The death of Mut Nojmet, the Queen of Egypt, removed the primary mechanism by which Horemheb might establish a lineage. Beyond this vague information, we can only speculate. You might assume that Horemheb would take another wife and try again, but if he did that, we do not hear about it. Horemheb leaves no records of other women or children. That doesn't mean they never existed, and future excavations might reveal more information about Horemheb's life. For now, all we can say is that Horemheb apparently gave up on children. At some point, the king chose Paramesu to be his heir. We do not know if Horemheb announced this publicly, or if it was a private political arrangement within the court. The king might have acknowledged Paramesu in a ceremony, but we don't have a record for it. Again, that does not mean it didn't happen. But in this historical moment, where major changes were underway, we need to be cautious and not assume too much. Horemheb made his decision. The royal household gained an heir, where before there had been a gap. Either officially, or quietly in the halls of power, Paramesu would be the designated successor. Egypt's next king was assured, and potentially the one after that, and maybe the one after that. At this point, in the middle of Horemheb's reign, Egypt's 18th dynasty came to its end. The 19th dynasty was underway. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Every episode is supported by my wonderful subscribers on Patreon.com. Extra thanks must go to the priests, Linda, Kyla, Ashley, Mykost, Evan, TJ, Terry, Nidin, Stephen, Jason, and Andy and Chelsea. Thanks to these fine folks, I have now appointed my own chatty, my research assistant, Alyssa. For the past two years... Alyssa has been preparing notes, references, and information about topics that are coming up on the show. We started our research with the high officials of Horemheb, and in particular, his servant Paramesu. So, today marks the official introduction of Alyssa. Rejoice, for the succession is assured. And please, give thanks to Alyssa for her assistance. That's all from me. I will see you soon. Take care, and may the gods bless you and your family. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China. 
where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.